0: Welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists discuss their most recent work. Today, it was really fun chatting with Jillian Jordan, Assistant Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School. Jillian's work has focused on human morality and the role that reputation plays in shaping cooperative behavior. Her fascinating research has integrated methods from psychology, behavioral economics, and evolutionary game theory, and has been featured in outlets such as the New York Times, Washington Post, and The Guardian. In this episode, Jillian discusses her new paper on the virtuous victim effect, where victims of wrongdoing are seen as more moral than non-victims. She explains this finding with what is called the justice restoration hypothesis, where seeing victims as morally good people makes the wrongdoing seem unjust, which motivates people to help the victim and punish the perpetrator. Jillian then chats about the philosophy guiding her research. And why appealing to people's concerns about how others see them can be a powerful way to make the world a better place. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi, everyone. Today, I have the big pleasure of speaking with none other than Jillian Jordan. Um, Before we talk about your paper, first of all, thank you so much for joining the podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so
1: much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: So you sent me this recently accepted paper, very, very recently accepted paper called Virtuous (laughs) Victims, which is a catchy title if I've ever seen one. And It was really fun (laughs) to read it, maybe just in very general terms. What is this paper about and why were you motivated to study this phenomenon?
1: Um, thanks. So the paper, um, broadly speaking, is sort of looking at the way that we perceive victims of wrongdoing. Um, and and the motivation was sort of, we're constantly hearing narratives about victims of immoral acts, all sorts of different immoral acts um, in our di- daily lives, but also um, in the news, on social media, and, and sort of often allegations of victimization can kind of frame important societal debates. And so, um, I was interested in the way that people perceive the moral character of victims. So, um, basically what the, the key finding is in the paper is that if you learn that somebody has been a victim of mistreatment by somebody else, um, you see that person as a more moral person, not because of any information about their own behavior, but actually just because somebody else has mistreated them. That sort of makes you see the victim as as morally virtuous. Um, And we find this across sort of a range of different types of moral transgressions. um, And we're sort of interested in the paper and in sort of digging in and exploring what is the psychology surrounding this phenomenon and what's sort of the explanation for it. But the the punchline is really that we tend to see people as morally virtuous if they've been mistreated by somebody else.
0: And I love it because it's so counterintuitive, right? The first (laughs) thing that comes to mind is all this victim blaming that we have. Um, Where victims are seen at fault are seen as at fault for whatever happened to them, just so we can feel like we're in a just world. But you're really saying we're we're talking about something else here, and there is something else going on.
1: Right. And so, so there's been a lot of research suggesting that that sometimes we see victims as to blame for sort of causing or bringing about their own victimization. Um, And I think definitely, as you said, this sort of, in some senses, is a opposite effect in the sense that this is a positive kind of conclusion people are reaching about victims, whereas blaming victims is sort of negative. Um, On the other hand, I do think there is sort of an important theoretical distinction between attributing causal blame to a victim versus seeing them as having morally good or bad character. Um, so, So perhaps that's sort of something helpful to clarify from the outset. Like, I think that the research on victim blaming essentially asks people how much Is it the case that the victim kind of took actions that caused them to be victimized? So, you know, you might conclude if someone was mugged on the street, maybe something they did to cause that was not paying attention. Maybe they're looking at their phone while walking down the street or something like that. Um, And and that's sort of a distinct theoretical question from, does that person have moral character that is good or bad, right? I could be a good person who was victimized. And also maybe I took actions that um, made it more likely that I was victimized. And so um, I actually think sort of, it remains an open question, even after we've done this research on the virtuous victim phenomenon, it remains sort of an open question. How does the judgment that a victim is morally virtuous relate or not relate to when we see victims as to blame for causing their own victimization? Um, but, But yeah, I think that in some ways it is really counterintuitive that we see victims as morally good. And I think another reason why that's sort of a surprising finding is just because Uh, Most of what we know about how we determine somebody's moral character is that we sort of focus on their own moral behavior or other direct attributes of that individual, right? Like if if I want to know, is Eric a good or a bad person, um, sort of the most obvious basis I'm going to use to determine that is just information I have about his proclivity to behave morally. How has he behaved in the past? Does he help other people? Does he betray other people? Like, is he somebody who tends to take moral action? Um, And we also know that other kind of direct attributes of Eric might bias my understanding of how moral he is. So If we share in-group membership, right, is he a member of my political party or are we from the same country? Um, We know from research on the halo effect that somebody's physical attractiveness might influence how moral I think they are. Uh, But these are all sort of direct attributes of a person. So I think what's what's sort of striking about this finding is that actually how you're treated by somebody else Can shape how moral you seem even if I haven't learned anything kind of direct about you or your group membership or your behavior if somebody else behaved in a way that was immoral towards you and you're sort of a recipient of that bad behavior that can actually make me see you as virtuous
0: there's so much to unpack here but before we go into all the all the details and all the implications of this maybe let's talk briefly about how do you even know this how do you measure this and I want to Uh, note to our listeners here that there's 17 studies in this paper, which is so many studies. So of course, please don't feel like you have to explain all 17 of them, but just in general, how do you get at these effects? How do you measure them?
1: Yeah, so I'll I'll sort of walk you through the very sort of basic design as as to sort of how we got at this. So what we did is we had people read um, vignettes, which is just sort of a word for a story about a character. Um, And then had them rate the moral character of people in the story. Um, So one sort of um, moral transgression that we looked at a lot was just theft of a material position, specifically theft of somebody's iPad. So we had a story about a person we can call her Sarah, who's a college student and Sarah has some friends over to her dorm room to study or some classmates over to her dorm room to study for an upcoming exam. Um, And she and a couple of other people are all studying in her dorm room. And at one point, someone, a classmate named Gabrielle asked to see her iPad to look something up. So she lets Gabrielle use the iPad to look something up later. The classmates leave Sarah relaxes by watching TV on her iPad. And then she goes out for the night. Um, And in one experimental condition, which we call the neutral condition, that's the whole story. So Um, nothing particularly noteworthy happens in the story. Sarah is just kind of a neutral person, um, in the victim condition. However, the story actually continues after Sarah goes out, Gabrielle breaks into her dorm room and steals her iPad. And then Sarah comes home and notices it's missing and she's very upset. So in this condition, Sarah behaves identically, um, but something else is conveyed, which is that Gabrielle mistreated her, stole her iPad, and so Sarah becomes a victim. Um, And then after subjects read one of these two versions of the story, so it's sort of a between subjects manipulation, they they don't read both versions, they read one or the other, and we ask them how moral of a person is Sarah and how trustworthy of a person is Sarah. And what we find is that people in the neutral condition think Sarah's sort of a little bit moral. um, a little bit above like the midpoint on our scale from not moral at all to very moral. Like she's sort of a little bit good. That's kind of people's default perception. And then people in the victim condition think she's a little bit better. They rate her as a little bit more moral and more trustworthy of a person. Um, Even though she behaved identically. just because Gabrielle stole her iPad, that makes her seem more moral.
0: I was really surprised by this one finding that you had that all of these effects were Kind of insensitive to the gender or the race of the victim, um, and it doesn't yeah, really matter, right?
1: Yeah. So, so we kind of um, got at that in two ways. Kind of what is the, what is the effect of the victim's um, race or gender? And and so with respect to the gender, in in um, as you mentioned, there's a bunch of different studies and eleven different studies. We actually. Um, counterbalanced or manipulated like the gender of the character in the story. So I just told you a story about a woman named Sarah who either was or wasn't a victim. Um, other people saw the exact same story, but it was a man named Sam who's the protagonist. And then what we can do is just kind of compare the effect size. how much, more moral is this protagonist when they're a victim versus um, in the neutral condition? And, and does this differ depending on if it's Sarah or Sam? Um, and when we aggregate across these 11 studies, we we find pretty clear evidence that you get this effect where the target seems more moral if they're a victim than if they're not a victim, both for Sam and for Sarah. And there's not a meaningful difference in how big the effect is for the two genders. Um, and then we also uh, did one study where. In addition to just giving people the story that I talked about, we showed them a photograph of the protagonist. Mm-hmm. Um, and we used the photograph to convey information about their race and gender. So, in addition to kind of having a male or female name with male or female pronouns, we actually showed a photo and we looked at um, male and female uh, protagonists. And we also varied if they were white or black. So, we looked at white versus black race in this study as well. Um, and we found Uh, again, in this study that, that there didn't seem to be a difference in how big the effect was depending on the race or the gender of the person in the photograph. Um, And so for this study, it's just one study. So we're sort of a little bit less confident that there's no difference in the effect size, just because um, we have fewer subjects in the one study than, than in the 11 studies. But we did find evidence that um, the effect holds both for male and for female and for white and for black protagonists, suggesting that um, at least in the context of this story about theft with sort of a sample um, collected on Amazon Mechanical Turk, if, if, if listeners familiar with that, um, we didn't seem to find that the white versus black race or male versus female gender was, was having a big bearing on this
0: effect. One thing I really appreciate about the paper is that you address alternative explanations for this effect, because you might say, well, you know, for example, we could just feel empathy for the poor victim, right? They were part of, you know, part of a crime, and we feel empathy for them, and then we're like, yeah, you know, they're a moral person. We're just saying this to be nice, but you address this, and this is just one alternative explanation. You say, well, that's, that's not really driving the effect here; it's really more about this yeah, justice so- restoration.
1: Right, right. So maybe I can I can explain a little bit how we how we ruled out that sort of simple sympathy story and also um, what we think is actually the explanation for the effect. So so um, one one sort of simple explanation you might think of, just like you just said, is is maybe this effect simply reflects that people uh, feel sorry for the victim. And so they're motivated to say nice things about them. It seems kind of harsh to rate this person as not very moral if they, you know, just had their stuff stolen. Maybe that's the explanation. And so one prediction you might make, if that is the explanation, um, is you might expect that the effect would sort of extend generally to anybody who suffered a bad outcome, regardless of whether um, they were a victim of immoral treatment or sort of accidental misfortune. And you also might expect that the effect would sort of extend generally to all sorts of nice things we might want to say about victims. So we might not just say that the victims are morally virtuous, but also that they're competent um, and and sort of positive on other dimensions. So so what we did to kind of test whether or not that was the case is we looked at victims of accidental misfortune who suffer the exact same material outcome, but they're not mistreated by somebody. Um, So so for example, or, sort of more specifically, we kind of riffed on this iPad theft scenario and had a version where somebody's iPad was destroyed due to an earthquake or due to a cat accidentally knocking it off. So there's no sort of intentional immoral actor, but they still suffer the same negative outcome. So you should sort of feel bad for them too. Um, and we also looked not just at how moral of a person you think the protagonist is, but also how funny and athletic and sociable and intelligent you think they are. So sort of other positive traits um, that aren't related to moral character. And what we found is that um, while victims of immoral actions, so victims of theft, were seen as more morally virtuous than neutral targets who didn't lose their iPad, victims of accidents, so somebody who lost their iPad in the earthquake or because a cat knocked it off the shelf, they were not seen as more moral. So the virtuous victim effect sort of did not extend um, to the victims of accidental misfortune. And we also found that the effect didn't extend equally to these positive traits that had nothing to do with morality. So the theft victims got a big boost on how moral and trustworthy they seem, these sort of morally relevant traits, and they didn't get um, as big of a boost on these other positive traits, like how funny or athletic they were, suggesting that there's sort of some specific effect where victims of immoral action are specifically seen as morally virtuous, Um, suggesting that it's not just that we feel bad saying um, things that aren't super positive about anyone who suffered a negative outcome. If that were the case, we'd sort of expect we're going to want to say nice things about the accident victims, and we're going to want to say all sorts of nice things about them, including that, you know, they're also funny and athletic and intelligent and stuff like that. Um, so so that sort of seemed to suggest it's not just that we were just saying this to be nice. We, we have some sort of a specific effect going on relating to morality. And what we think the explanation for that is, is that basically when you see a victim as morally virtuous it sort of motivates you to help that person and to punish the perpetrator who harmed them, right? So if if I learn that Eric was a victim of theft, I'm going to sort of feel especially motivated to compensate him for his loss and punish the person who stole his stuff if I think he's a good person. If I think he's not a very good person, maybe it doesn't seem like such an injustice um, or like he's all that deserving of these sort of justice restorative actions, which, which is the term we use in the paper to refer to, helping victims and punishing the perpetrators who have harmed those victims. Um, So so we argue that the virtuous victim effect has this consequence of sort of motivating people to help victims and to punish the wrongdoers who have harmed victims. And we argue that, that sort of typically Um, It's actually beneficial for people to feel motivated to help victims and punish wrongdoers because um, sort of a broad body of research in our field kind of suggests that punishing perpetrators and helping victims, these are actions that we, we often have incentives to engage in. So we know that punishing perpetrators can sort of serve to discourage future transgressions in society. And for this reason, I think there's a lot of incentives that we, we kind of have to punish perpetrators. There are sort of social institutions that can encourage us to punish perpetrators. Um, in some of my research, I've shown that punishing perpetrators can boost our reputation. So if I punish someone who steals somebody else's iPad, um, this might actually benefit me by signaling to other people that I myself am not a thief and I wouldn't steal someone's iPad or or more generally that I would behave in a way that's virtuous myself. And so um, reputation can be sort of a reason we have to punish perpetrators. There's also evidence that similar mechanisms can incentivize us to help victims, right? So um, we know there's a lot of incentives that people face to be cooperative. We're a really cooperative species, and sometimes we extend this cooperation specifically to victims of wrongdoing. So there, so there's actually evidence that that helping a victim of wrongdoing can be an even stronger signal of my moral character than punishing a perpetrator of wrongdoing. So these similar types of reputational benefits um, may kind of incentivize us to both punish perpetrators and help victims. And so the proposal is that we basically see victims as morally virtuous because this encourages us to punish those who have wronged them and to help them because we're gonna kind of be motivated to do that on behalf of someone who is virtuous. And and this can in turn uh, benefit us. Right. It can make us look morally virtuous, which which is something we might be incentivized to do or it might be sort of rewarded by social institutions in society. Um, And so that was sort of what we called the justice restoration hypothesis for for why people see victims as morally good. And we try to kind of explicitly test um, predictions of that account in the paper.
0: So this was going to be my last question to you, but I just have to ask, you know, just basically, uh, what is your view of human nature? <laughs> Maybe I should clarify it a little bit, but I really like the narrative that you were just retelling here and that you're you know, talking about in the paper, because so much of moral psychology um, is about how we are selfish and we're hypocrites and we just want to get away with all kind of stuff. And we believe in a just world so we can blame victims and feel entitled if we succeed and, you know, blame ourselves if we fail. And. You know, there's just this nastiness that, to human nature, which is certainly true, right? And certainly present. But maybe I'm just being hopelessly optimistic and naive here. I don't know. But my understanding of the paper is that it's really providing a little bit of like a counter narrative. It's a bit more optimistic, even though it's tied into reputational mechanisms and everything. But it's really like, no, we have this mechanism where we see victims as more moral than maybe they would be if they hadn't been a victim, because that motivates us to restore justice in the world. And That's really a powerful and uplifting narrative.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um as you say, like both both sort of things are true and I actually sort of um zooming out a little more broadly to like my my research agenda, like I think that I'm particularly interested in reputation in part because I think that reputation is kind of a nice way to link this negative narrative with this positive narrative in the sense that um I think Reputation systems basically give us a self-interested reason to do all sorts of virtuous things. And one sort of beautiful part of that is like that we often internalize our reputational incentives such that we kind of genuinely feel all the things that are going to help us get a good reputation and that are kind of virtuous motivations. And so I think that um, the, the, The framework that that I kind of subscribe to is that people essentially are compelled by incentives, including in the moral domain, and that there's a lot of pretty good incentives out there that kind of make us want to do things like restore justice. Um, And and then this can have the consequence of us sort of having this positive view of victims and and seeing them in a good way rather than necessarily trying to blame them for their wrongdoing. And I, I think that... Certainly there are contexts in which people are quite motivated to maintain a just world narrative. But I think it's very clear that ubiquitously in our daily life and when the stakes are high and when the stakes are low, we often see things that we think are wrong and we don't just say no the victim deserved it nothing nothing is wrong here everything's perfectly mm-hmm. just about the world. I think we perceive a lot of injustice in the world, we care deeply about it and and we're quite motivated often to Change the systems that allow this injustice and um, punish perpetrators and help victims and and try to restore justice. And I think this may actually be sort of a more um, common reaction to to wrongdoing. I think there are certainly situations in which we try to excuse away wrongdoing and justify it on the basis of a just world narrative. But I think you know we all constantly have the experience of hearing about something and just thinking, no, that's wrong, and and and. And it should be different.
0: It's it's not okay. And even the people who excuse the behavior and are just like, yeah, whatever. And just legitimizing the injustice. It's not like they were always like this, right? There might be individuals who are always like this, but some people just started their job and are really optimistic and, you know, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to change it for the better. And then they have one roadblock after another and so many obstacles. And then they become like grim and cynical over time. Um, but of course, it is true, and you find this in your paper in this one boundary condition. There can be certain environments in which you might have a reputation for not restoring, death, right? In which you want to have a reputation for. I don't care about this. Let's just move on, right? Um, and sadly, we have a lot of these environments where where you know the virtuous victim effect is uh, disappearing.
1: Right. So, yeah, I think that um, the justice restoration framework and and the the prediction that the virtuous victim effect should specifically occur when we kind of have incentives to punish perpetrators and help victims and not occur when we have disincentives to punish perpetrators and help victims, I think really helps to, to kind of clarify like when this should and shouldn't happen. And I definitely think there are plenty of situations, really important situations where people actually have incentives to excuse wrongdoing and sort of exonerate perpetrators and not compensate victims. And in these situations, um, we we should predict the opposite, right? Not Not only may people not actually see victims as morally good, but they might be motivated to derogate their character, to mm. smear them, to kind of blame them for for what they did in an effort to uh, deflect blame from the perpetrator who they have incentives to exonerate. Um, And so I think that while while it may not be sort of the default psychology that people bring into studies where they just sort of hear an abstract story about theft, um, I think there's a lot of really important settings in the real world where people do have disincentives to punish perpetrators and help victims, and and this effect isn't always going to occur. So I think um, there's, there's sort of always kind of the positive and negative framings that you can focus on, and I think that's absolutely true here as well.
0: Now, just like with anything in psychology, the environment has an impact, but also our personality, right? And there are some people who just personality-wise are horrible, right? <laughs> who are high on the dark triad, who are very psychopathic and right. narcissistic, and one argument that you could make here, of course, is that some people, no matter where they are, especially in these kinds of toxic environments, if you call them, um, they might really abuse this logic and might even learn about this and say, oh, cool. So if I play the victim, I get people to you know, yeah, sympathy and all of that. But now they're learning, oh, great. So, you know, this impels people to do all kinds of things and to change things. And, you know, um, you could almost see how they might be motivated to, to you know, abuse this uh, narrative. But then we might also have detection mechanisms to see, oh, well, these people are just playing around and. One interesting condition that I also saw in your paper was that there's a difference between whether a third person is telling you about the crime, the victim, and the perpetrator, or whether the victim itself, you know, uh, themselves are telling you about it. Whether oh my this horrible thing happened to me, right? Please, you know, pity me and <laughs> do something about it. There's a big difference there, right?
1: Right, absolutely. So, so it's I think this is actually a direction that it would be nice to do a little more research on. But I can explain what we did and sort of sort of my thoughts on it. So we had one study where we um, used again, this iPad theft scenario that I've discussed so far. And we just varied whether um, the narrative was conveyed in third person. So you just read a story about Sarah and then you learn that Gabrielle stole her iPad. And so it's sort of this implied omniscient narrator um, where, you know, you, you as a subject reading the story, just kind of assume everything you read is definitely true. It's explained by this narrator who somehow knows knows everything about the world. Um, and so I think in terms of what this would map onto in the real world, you know, this is kind of like hearing about somebody else being a victim, maybe in the news or from uh, a mutual contact in your social network, like hearing the this, this story that like, you know, I happen to know that Eric's friend did X to Eric and I tell this to somebody else. Um, and then we've got another condition where um, the protagonist tells the story of how their iPad was was stolen themselves in first person. Um and you know this would be more analogous to just just hearing somebody share their victim narrative in the real world. Um, and when we did this experiment, what we found is that the third party condition elicited the virtuous victim effect, but the first person condition actually didn't. So people mm-hmm. didn't see the victim as any more moral or, or sorry, they didn't see the the protagonist as any more moral when the protagonist said in first person that their iPad was stolen versus the protagonist told this sort of neutral account in which um, they used the iPad, but it wasn't stolen. Um so so when we found this effect we thought it was quite interesting and we were we were kind of curious how general it was and one thing that jumped out at us is that in the iPad theft story the theft happens um in a context where the victim is actually not present, right? So the victim goes out for the night and then Gabrielle like breaks into their dorm room and steals the iPad and they're not there to see it. So, you know, when you read this in the third person uh, condition, it kind of sounds like objective fact. Like the narrator is just telling you, Gabrielle stole the iPad. You believe that to definitely be true. Um, whereas in the first person condition, we just took literally the exact same words, but but put them in first person. And so how it reads is Sarah's sort of just asserting, when I was out, Gabrielle stole my iPad, but she's not justifying that with particular evidence, like how she knows it was Gabrielle, et cetera. So one thing that we wondered is, does the first person uh, uh, sort of version fail to create this virtuous victim effect because people are questioning the veracity of the narrative? Like, are they wondering, is it actually true that Gabrielle stole your iPad? Or are you just saying that? How am I supposed to to know that this is the case? Um, so what we did is we, we did another experiment where we um, looked at the virtuous victim effect in the context of first-person versus third-person narratives, and we used a different um, transgression. And this transgression was, was a story about the theft of an idea. So it was a story where someone came up with an idea for an advertising slogan at work, and they shared it with their manager. And then the manager like uh, unfairly took credit for the idea and presented it to like the next person higher-up-level boss at the organization as if it was the manager's own idea. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the story, uh, the manager does this actually while the victim, the person who had the idea, is like right there. So so they actually witness the theft of their idea firsthand. And so it's not like they have definitive proof to convey it when telling their first-person narrative, but at least... um, it sounds a little bit less baseless to, to sort of report mm-hmm. the story when you were right there. And we actually found in that version that we did get a virtuous victim effect both in the third person, but also in the first person condition. So um, in this uh, experiment we we didn't actually find it to be the case that the effect failed to obtain in the context of the first person narrative. So i think that my takeaway from from the two studies is that of course there's you know there's various things that differ between the two studies so we can't be sure exactly what's going on but it seems like one plausible hypothesis is that when you tell your first person victim narrative um, people might question whether or not you are telling the truth. And if they don't believe that you are telling the truth, you're probably not going to benefit from the virtuous victim effect. And so, a potential pitfall with first person victim narratives is that people might not believe them. And I think mm-hmm. how much people do or don't believe first person narratives may depend a lot on the details of sort of what is your relationship to your audience, how much do they trust you mm-hmm. in general, what evidence do you have of the particular allegation that you're making. Um, and I think also, you know, the other other sides incentives may come into play here as well. Like, like, are they sort of um, incentivized to to be skeptical or to be believing of your story? Mm. Um, but I think that it's it's quite interesting in terms of going from our our results on the virtuous victim effect to thinking about what are the implications for um, how victims choose to come forward or not come forward with their stories. It's sort of quite interesting to see that um, the effect might be a little bit sort of uh, more fragile in the context of first-person narratives.
0: Mm. Do you believe the virtuous victim effect is sensitive to the magnitude of the victim? So if you're the victim of a small crime versus of a big crime, uh, one would suppose that if you're the victim of a big crime, uh, people feel like you're even more moral and even more justice has to be restored.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. We did. So we didn't do a study that I think provides a clean test of that. Um, we, we sort of had different experiments with different vignettes that I would certainly have my own intuitions about which one seemed more or less severe to people, but nothing where it's sort of like two similar transgressions, but one that's sort of more severe. Um, I think thinking about our theoretical framework for like, why does the virtuous victim effect occur? I think that the the real question is like, do more severe transgressions create greater incentives to punish perpetrators and help victims? Mm-hmm. If so, then then we would really expect the virtuous victim effect to be larger for the more severe transgressions. And I think, like there is certainly some intuitive appeal to that idea that the bigger the transgression, the larger the incentives to punish the perpetrator and help the victim. I could imagine, though, that it that it's sort of not quite that simple, just in the sense that um, maybe if a transgression, is extremely severe. It's actually sort of less uh, up to peers to punish it, or it sort of Mm -hmm. says less about me as a person if I choose Mm -hmm. to punish it. So I think um, the, the sort of prediction you make is intuitive. The only uncertainty in my mind is whether um, it's actually the case that more severe transgressions necessarily translate to larger incentives to punish perpetrators and help victims. But insofar as they do, I think then we would expect the virtuous victim effect to be amplified. Um, and I will say that of all the different transgressions we tested in our uh, experiments, the one that produced by far the largest virtuous victim effect was... Um, a vignette where the transgression in question was rape, and and I would guess that that would be seen hmm. of all of them as the most severe transgression. So so that might be consistent with what you're suggesting.
0: This makes me wonder about the large scale implications of really the virtuous victim effect in a world where you open social media, you open the news, you open whatever it is, you hear about all the horrible things that are happening in the world all the time. Um, and it's really quite terrifying. And there's, you know, everyone's a victim of so many things. And there's so much justice to be restored that it can feel almost quite overwhelming, right? It's not just that mm. each event is so big. It's like all of them together. It's, 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 I wonder if there's almost this curvilinear relationship where if we hear a lo- about a little bit injustice, about some crimes, we're like, let's do something about it. But then there's, you know, there's Afghanistan right now. There's so many things right now where we just feel like each of them is completely impossible that maybe at some point it just feels natural. Not that it's the right thing to do, but it just feels natural just, you know, throw our hands in the sky and say, I don't know, I'm just not going to do anything.
1: Right, absolutely. And I mean, I think that um, insofar as it's the case that we feel like too overwhelmed to do anything, you might imagine that we kind of want to justify that decision by not really thinking much about the virtue of the victims, which would, would kind of make us feel more guilty about not acting to help those victims or to punish the perpetrators who have harmed those victims. So I think um, insofar as we kind of feel like it's too costly or too overwhelming to attempt to restore justice, I do agree that, that in context like that, maybe we would kind of stop amplifying the morality of victims. And I, I definitely agree that um, there are a lot of, you know, Really horrible transgressions that are occurring that it feels like people they do kind of what you're describing. they just kind of throw their hands up and say, "I'm not going to engage um, and I think an interesting kind of prediction i'm not, I'm just now thinking about in response to your question is like um, we may have incentives to particularly intervene to restore justice by punishing perpetrators and helping victims in sort of self relevant or socially relevant. Um, transgression contexts, right that are sort of less socially distant from us, um, more kind of like relevant moral debates that are going on in our communities and and maybe to disengage from injustices happening in other countries where we feel like maybe we have less incentives to get involved, it's more costly to get involved. And so um, we don't we just we say I don't even want to think about that and 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 we therefore might not want to elevate the moral character of those victims because that might sort of increase our guilt for for doing nothing
0: mm. and then maybe this is where we come back to the just world beliefs that people tend to have that you know yeah everything's fine in the end it can't be that bad right which is something that uh right. you eliminated in a sense as, as an explanation right that the, the, the idea that we oftentimes have that victims are to blame for what they did and for what happened to them because that makes us feel safe in a predictable world, like that we can control, right? That is just, right, right. we don't have to worry about it. And maybe that's a condition in which that would be more so the case. And I, I really wonder, uh, and I know that you address this in the paper, but I feel like there's still something to be said for the case that maybe we agree that the moral character of victims is heightened, but maybe we can still say that in a way that allows us to justify not doing anything in which we're just like, yeah, they're so moral. They're actually really naive. Uh, and maybe they're mm. still. To- right, um, where if you had an outcome variable that was like directly a measure of naivety or you know, they're so moral, you know, they don't behave more morally, but they're like a more moral person in a sense, too moral, too naive, too weak in a world that is this tough. And so it's their fault. And maybe this can still be a justification that people can use. Not to be too dark, and <laughs> right? But I, I really wonder if there's some some dark take on this.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think that um, I definitely agree that in context where we sort of feel like we're we're not going to choose to act to restore justice. It might make sense that we would kind of want to blame the victim more and 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 justify the transgression as actually okay. Um, I, with respect to this idea that that we would we would sort of see them as too moral in a blameworthy way, mm-hmm. I, I don't totally share that intuition. Like I think that in general If somebody is moral, I think that kind of increases the, the, um, motivational force of our desire to punish the perpetrator and help them. And so if we're going to choose not to do that, um, I think that, that I, I don't think we would do that by saying they're too moral, but I think that this idea that too moral could be related to being naive or, or like negligent, like they haven't, um, acted in ways that they should have to prevent themselves from being victimized, I think we definitely might kind of use that as a way to justify our non intervention. Um, And, and as you say, in the paper, we talk about how it would be interesting to kind of look at um, perceptions of sort of the helplessness or naivete of, um, uh, of victims in the sense that I think maybe there's a version of it, like you were just saying that we could kind of use to justify inaction. And, And I think there could also be a version where we, we kind of cite their helplessness as a way to actually motivate justice restorative action. Like, mm.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: I think it, it's sort of clear that maybe harming somebody who's a child or mm. has the capacity of a child is like more wrong than an mm. adult, right? Because they're so innocent and helpless. And I wonder if we also might ascribe those types of judgments to victims, actually, in the same way that we see them as virtuous, mm. as a way to sort of uh, further enhance our motivation for justice restorative action. So so I think there there may actually be kind of an interestingly fine line between what types of traits we want to see the victim as having if we want to justify the need for justice restorative action and helping the the victim and punishing the perpetrator, and then maybe also similar but meaningfully different um, flavor of, of these traits could be used to justify our inaction and blame the victim and say it's their fault that they're in this situation and actually, you know, it's not an injustice. So, Mm. so yeah, I think it's, it's, that would be quite interesting to kind of get a richer sense of these different traits that we may ascribe to victims. I
0: don't know if this is making sense, but this is making me remember the scene from The Office in which Michael Scott is going on a date with his boss, which is problematic, you know, but that's what he does. And (laughs) as he leaves, he tells all his employees to just go home and his boss is like, what it's the middle of the day what are you doing and it's like <laughs> oh without me everything's going to fall apart and everything's going to be up in ashes and like, up in flames and nothing's going to work right they really need my help so it's almost like you perceive them as needing help so you can be the one to like um restore some justice mm-hmm. and make the world a better it's a very cynical thing uh, <laughs> so but, um, wait sorry
1: i i haven't seen the episode he he does this in order to like impress his boss by showing how useful he is
0: or is i think it, is in that his mind that's the implication like, see how everything's going to fall apart without me i'm so great so everyone just you know go home okay. and she's like what um that's that's so, um, interesting but, but anyway so this is not super really it just came up um, oh <laughs> um, I, I have a maybe no, a relevant funny. question about um do you think victims themselves uh see themselves as more virtuous or is this just from the outsider perspective
1: Right, yeah, it's a great question. What what the sort of self concept of victims are? I I don't know. I mean, I think that um, there might be interesting individual differences, just like we've been talking about, kind of contexts where third parties will see victims as moral versus contexts where third parties will will be motivated to derogate victims or or smear them or or blame them. Like, I think that my understanding is there's definitely a literature on on victims sometimes suffering a lot of um, negative emotions relating to the, to their role in getting victimized after they've been victimized, feeling ashamed, feeling guilty, um, feeling like it was their fault, feeling like they'll be stigmatized. So I know like it's, it certainly is the case. I think sometimes that people have these negative self-evaluations following victimization. Um, and I think that it also makes sense that in some contexts, people might feel, good about themselves um as a result of being victimized insofar as they kind of realize it gives them the moral high ground in a scenario and that they are going to be seen Mm. as in the right and maybe be the recipients of the virtuous victim Mm. effect i mean i i must say that like i i almost can kind of intuitively feel this myself sometimes like if just some random person is an asshole to you out in the world and then you get to go home and like tell the story of Oh, this totally unjustified thing happens to me. Like you you kind of feel like self-righteous and good about it, especially if, you know, the the actual impact, the magnitude of, of the wrongdoing towards you is not that big, but it's just like you were clearly in the right and someone else was clearly in the wrong and that can kind of feel good and, and, and righteous. So um, I feel like it's super interesting to kind of explore the self-concepts of victims and try to understand the context in which people um, might feel shame or negative uh, following their victimizations versus they might actually potentially feel morally virtuous following being victimized. Um, but unfortunately, I, I feel like our studies can't really speak to that. So, so it's mm-hmm. an interesting open question for sure.
0: Speaking of open questions, what are some future directions that you would like to see in this line of work? And what are some future directions that you want to be pursuing? What are you excited about that you uh, want to study further?
1: Thanks. Yeah. So I feel like we we talked we touched on a few, but just to kind of make it a little more explicit. Like I think that one thing that's really interesting is to look at the relationship of the virtuous victim effect to victim blaming. Um, and to kind of understand like how how these things relate. Like, is it the case that we may simultaneously blame victims while also seeing them as virtuous? Or are the kind of contexts in which the literature has documented that victim blaming occurs, like are those contexts where people actually just have incentives um, not to engage in justice restorative action and we wouldn't expect the virtuous victim effect to occur. And maybe we would even expect the victim blaming to be paired with derogation of the victims. Um, and I'm, I'm particularly interested. I mean, I think this is a generally interesting question, but I'm particularly interested in like the sort of domain of sexual assault as a direction to kind of, look at victim blaming versus the virtuous victim effect, because, um, my understanding is like a lot of the research on victim blaming so far, um, has actually been in the domain of, of rape and sexual assault. And so, um, I think there, and there's just a lot of cultural sort of, um, conversation about the prevalence of victim blaming following sexual assault. And I mean, this relates a lot to what we were just talking about, about the stigma and shame and, and stuff that victims can feel and so I think it's quite interesting to um, try to understand like when we kind of get the virtuous victim effect when we get blaming are these different contexts like how do they relate to each other and and sort of what incentives do third parties have in these sexual assault situations to kind of elevate or derogate um, sexual assault victims and as I mentioned we So we had one scenario in our paper where we look at um, a stranger rape scenario and we get this really big virtuous victim effect. So it definitely is the case that it's possible for victims of sexual assault to be perceived as morally good as a result of the assault. But we also had this other sexual aggression scenario in the paper um, that was actually the one scenario that totally didn't produce the virtuous victim effect and this was a different scenario um, where the sexual aggression didn't come from a stranger it came from somebody that the victim knew and actually had initiated an initially consensual sexual interaction with and the scenario was like vaguer as to what actually happened so there were a lot of differences there was also it was in like a party setting and alcohol was involved and um, we didn't get the virtuous victim effect so so it sort of um, suggest to me that that this may be a space where um, sometimes you're going to get this effect, sometimes you're not. And I'm interested in kind of understanding that and how it relates to victim blaming. Um, and, and I'm also interested in sort of just more generally understanding like what what our perceptions are of victims in context where maybe we have incentives to uh, maintain the system currently and excuse transgressions. I think uh, so. So I think there's sort of a lot of interesting questions there. Um, and, and I also think this ties into how I was saying there is sort of a need for, for a better understanding of this first person versus third person um, distinction. Like, mm. I think a, a lot of the times um, people are kind of afraid to come forward with their narratives of being sexually assaulted. Although, uh, of course, there's, there's a lot of efforts with the Me Too movement and stuff to kind of make people feel more comfortable coming forward. But I think that... Um, the, the question of sort of are these effects mitigated when you're sharing your own narrative is maybe worth studying specifically in the context of sexual assault um, as as that sort of seems like a big space where um, people have a lot of very rational concerns about coming forward with their narratives. So so that's one direction that I think is, is quite interesting. And then also what we were just talking about in terms of how more generally aware like 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 how do these um affects this virtuous victim effect kind of shape the psychology of victims and like how aware are people of the fact that being a victim can confer moral status on them in certain contexts and like um are people also aware maybe of the pitfalls of sharing their first person narratives like how do people kind of manage um their reputations when sharing their stories about being being victimized. And and what does that look like? So um, I think that's quite interesting. I'm generally interested in sort of reputation signaling strategies people use. And so uh, I think kind of tying that to people sharing their stories about victimization is an interesting direction.
0: And this is where we're coming full circle to uh, your view of human nature, right? And and you mentioned (laughs) earlier that Reputation is this great mechanism that we can have that can make us be better people. Um one very easy and you know simplistic response to this would be, what? If we only do good when people are watching us so we can, you know, get a better standing, how is that a good thing, right? That's a sad view of human nature, but it seems like you have a more powerful story to tell here.
1: Yeah, so I think that like um basically the fact that we internalize the the sort of reputational incentives that we face is is kind of the reason that I think you can take a more hopeful or less cynical stance than what you just said. So I think there's there's a lot of evidence that basically, if it's going to make us look good to do a particular um, thing, that instead of just kind of explicitly thinking to ourselves, I'm only going to want to do that thing if I'm being watched, we may come to actually just internalize the incentive such that we're genuinely motivated to do that thing. And we are kind of compelled to do that thing, even if um, we're actually not in a situation where there's any concrete reputational benefit to be gained from doing it. Um, And I think that, you know, one reason that this can be a good strategy is that if we're constantly calculating about whether or not we're being watched, like that actually isn't great for our reputation. So so I have some work on this with um, Dave Rand and Moshe Hoffman and Martin Novak, looking at sort of how being uncalculating as a cooperator can actually boost our reputation. Um, and Moshe Hoffman, who's on that paper, has, has done some cool theory work sort of about um, why why it might be the case that kind of being somebody who cooperates without looking at, at, at the cost or benefits can kind of, actually serve to enhance how much people trust you and and kind of benefit your reputation even further. Um, So I think that like the reputational incentives may sort of encourage us to particularly um, yeah, encourage us to kind of internalize the actions that are reputationally rewarded, and there's there's a whole literature on norm internalization that I think is getting at the same sort of basic idea. So, the, so this is um, something we know is a really important part of our norm psychology, is that we kind of internalize our incentives, our incentives, including our reputational incentives to kind of adhere to social norms in our communities. So, so I think that um, even if reputation is this extremely powerful driver of our behavior, it doesn't necessarily mean that our willingness to do the stuff that will boost our reputation is um, conditional or restricted to context when we're being observed.
0: Yeah, that's really powerful. And we're running up against time, <laughs> which, is, which is very sad because I think this, this is such a wonderful conversation. And before we wrap up, I really want to give you another opportunity if you want um, to add anything to, um, yeah, I don't know what, what there is to add, but just if you want, um, if you want to add anything.
1: Thanks so much. Um, I don't know. I feel like uh, this was a great conversation. As you said, I totally agree. This was lots of fun. So so maybe good to to leave right now.
0: It's a perfect note to end on. Yes. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. This was super fun.